Welcome to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast, a faith community on Vancouver Island within the Anglican Network in Canada. We invite you to check out our website at ChristchurchOceanside.ca, or if you're on Vancouver Island, join us on a Sunday in the News Bay. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor, Father Ryan Matchett. We hope you enjoy. Bless you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, in combination with Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Do not give dogs what is holy, And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to thee, Lord Christ. Well, friends, welcome back here to our weekly podcast here where we are unpacking the good way of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of St. Matthew. I'm Pastor Ryan. I'm pastor here at Christ Church Oceanside, and this has been quite the series for us. I think it is touching on a lot of different notes pulling on some uncomfortable aspects. And now, what we're going to be looking at today in this text of Scripture is this really uncomfortable verse at the end here, verse 6, where Jesus speaks about dogs and pigs and pearls before swine and all of that stuff. So I think really what we're getting at, though, in this series is this, is that Jesus is giving us a vision for non-judgmental ways of living, but also relationships that are able to actually serve and help one another to receive the saving, healing, transformative power of grace. And that it's cultivated first and foremost, any good relationship like this is actually the fruit 
of an individual focus on receiving Jesus for yourself. So how do we get to relationships like that? We get to relationships like that by addressing the logs in our own eyes. It's a lifestyle that says the person that most needs Christ in this and every situation is me. Why? Well, there's so many reasons. Because I want to be more like Jesus, mainly, but because I want health and I want wholeness and I want freedom from these unhelpful patterns and the things that have been missing in my life that maybe I wasn't taught or I wasn't parented into or I didn't learn. These are the things that are available in Jesus. So I want in on that. I'll be honest with you, this really must become the reputation of the church to the world again. Is there a greater witness to the gospel than for the world to look at the church and see repentance, honesty, dealing with our own faults instead of being so focused on the faults of others. For a people that claim to hold the good news that there's salvation for sinners in the life and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus, we should be awfully focused on our own reception of said truth. Now, here's the thing. We all know that even if that is our focus, we still inevitably are going to come to a place where we need to address the sins and shortcomings of other people, whether that's with our friends, with our own children, with the communities that we exist in, or within the church. So verse 6 actually serves as a helpful, strategic counterbalance for us. Having everything else that we've learned in the previous five verses about being non-judgmental, then Jesus kind of just puts in this block at the end of it. And what it does is it saves us in receiving the call to non-judgment. It saves us from becoming uh, permissive, permissive to sin, and, and it saves us from the temptation of wanting to put off right discernment, which Jesus is going to require in verses 15 to 20, which we'll look look at in a few more weeks. So non-judgment is not the same thing as affirming harmful beliefs, thoughts, emotions, or behaviors. So we reserve judgmental sight for our own sins, and non-judgment for others. But with the gospel solution, we discover in dealing with the planks in our own eyes, we then see the sins of others. So we see other people's sins now as we see it through potential. We we see it through salvation. We see it through possibility. So it's hopeful, not damning. That's a very big difference. So hear Jesus' words. You will see clearly to take the speck out of your sibling's eye. That's what we want. By seriously engaging with the gospel for our own needs and sins, we will then be able to clearly take the speck out of our sibling's eye. So those specifically within the church, not the world, but those in our own communities and within the church. The 
our own journey becomes the way in which we serve other people's journey. Now, when is it time to do so? And how do we go about doing it? That's the big questions that we want to answer here today. When is it time to engage with somebody else's sin? And then how do I go about doing that according to the teachings of Jesus in the church? So what I want to do is I want to suggest something bold today. I want to suggest that we place Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, like I did in the reading today, in between verses 5 and 6. And this will help us kind of understand how we get to 6, and it's all with the teachings of Jesus. And I understand verse 6 gives off an initial shock, but I would ask that we just stick with Jesus. We can trust his character, and we can open our heart to hear his wisdom and watch what happens when we place his teaching from Matthew 18 into this mix. So Matthew 18, 15 to 17, here's what it has to say, just a bit of a refresher. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to you, to them, sorry, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here's what I'll do. I'll give a full summary of the way of non-judgment here. I'm going to give six steps today, which will take us through Matthew 18 and then on to Matthew 7, verse 6. So what's step one of the way of non-judgment that we've heard from Jesus so far? The first step is to swear off judgment. <laughs> we're swearing off judgment of others, right? So we're assuming the Beatitudes here, that your lifestyle is seeking to see yourself as poor in spirit, mourning because you're missing pieces, you have loss in this life, and that you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, right? So your biggest needs in the world are to have Jesus. And that's the way you're focused. Your primary focus is not, I need other people to be different. Your primary focus is, I need to be different. And Jesus is the way. And then what we're saying is we're looking at other people and we're hearing Jesus's command and we're saying, don't judge. So we're going to seek to stop ourselves because judgment in itself is a plank in our own eye. And so that's even the fact that I have judgment points to the fact, the same thing the Beatitudes are saying, that I need to repent of the way I'm living my life and really, truly believe the gospel of Jesus because he's the good way. My ways aren't working. I want the way that does. Step two, then, is to focus on receiving Jesus for yourself or for myself. So what I want to do is when I'm recognizing there's judgment in me, then I want to recognize my need for Jesus. Once I've recognized my need for Jesus, I'm going to ask him, show me where I struggle with the very same thing that I was judging that person for. I want to know, where do I struggle with this particular sin or deficiency? And then I want to begin addressing it in my own life 
through the way of Jesus, which means I want to know the roots. I want to know where this comes from in me. I want to know where I've chosen to live this way. I want to repent from that, and I want to believe the cross of Jesus, that it saves me, redeems me, justifies me, reconciles me to God, and that resurrection means that I have new life possible, that I don't have to keep living this way. A new way has been given to me in Jesus. That's, I want to give my efforts to personal transformation in that area. Then I want to speak openly about it with my friends, with the person that I even saw that initially triggered my, my recognition of my need for Jesus. When I was judging them, and now I'm going, okay, now I'm focused, I want to share that journey with those around me. And that's just part of the gospel is going, I'm going to be open and honest about my need for Christ. I want you to speak into my life. It's a way of being of true confession and repentance is going, look, you need to know about this. I'm working on this in my life. So what we can do then, so let's say as a parent, so first as a friend. As a friend, then I can start saying, hey, I just want to bring you in a bit here. I've noticed I have this in my life, and I'm actively seeking to receive Jesus and live differently in this area. I just want you to know about it. But that same way of bringing people in can also be done to our kids. This is one of the things I've been starting to do more as a dad, is to go, when I recognize a sinful behavior or a deficiency in my kids, something I need to train them in, instead of just instantly going into, you know, corrective language. Hey, you need to stop this or else there's going to be consequences and you need to start changing this. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm going, where's that in me? Where am I actively doing those very things? How have I been showcasing them that very behavior? And so then what I do is then I bring my kids into that and go, hey, I noticed I'm doing this. Maybe I'm overusing tech or maybe I'm being, you know, allowing my grumpiness to justify bad behaviors or or maybe I'm not serving well enough, loving people and sacrificing well enough. I bring my kids into that. So it's not uncommon for my kids at supper or breakfast morning or morning prayer to hear me repenting in that way and going, hey. Guys, I'm recognizing I'm doing this. This is how I'm receiving Jesus for that. And then I invite them to join me in pursuing transformation in that area. So it's kind of an indirect discipline in a way, but I actually think it's a healthier one for the state of our, the culture of our home. The same is true of friendships, but also relationships within the church is to go, when I start to see this is unhealthy, there's sinful patterns here, behaviors, and they need to be addressed, the healthiest way to address those is to start with me and then start with our council and start with our, our wardens and start with those who hold leadership within the church and to go, hey, we're doing some reflecting on this to go, where do we see this? How do we receive Jesus for this? And how can we serve other people in receiving Jesus for this? So I think it's just a healthy principle to go, I'm going to focus on receiving Jesus for myself. And that actually is the first place I should be having conversations with people around me about that thing. But that gives them the opportunity then to join the journey, right? Where we get to do it together. Where now, instead of me going, hey, bro, you got all these faults and they're driving me bonkers. You need to get it together. I'm saying instead, I see it in me. 
Is this something you struggle with? Could we be working on this together that we might mutually encourage each other? Once I've kind of done that, then if I start to see in a friend or a child or someone within the church that they're continuing in this behavior, because usually what happens is either we receive grace or we actually kind of double double down on the bad behavior. Because rejecting grace that's freely offered to us, if we reject it just even kind of privately, secretly in our own hearts, and we're like, no, I'm not working on that right now, it actually gets worse in our life. So it'll start showing itself more. It becomes more obvious. So that takes us to step three. Step three, if in a friend or someone within the church, they're starting to really become even more openly unhealthy or sinful in an area, then what does Jesus teach us? That's where we go to Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus says, address them in private. When I think the efforts to change cease, if they began at all, and harm is increasing in their life to themselves or to others, then it's time to talk to them, but to do it in private. Now, this is specifically if they're not hurting someone else seriously at the moment, right? So if you're like with some blokes and you're in the pub and you're having drinks together and you see one of your guy friends who's like borderline sexually harassing a woman, right? Coming on too strong, being too much, being inappropriate. That's not a private conversation because he's harming somebody else, right? So even in that moment, you got to step in there and say, hey, man, enough, stop. It's not, it's not okay. It's not appropriate. But what we're talking about here is like those things where you're starting to see the patterns in your life and you're like, man, this doesn't seem healthy. That conversation should be had in private whenever possible, right? And privacy is the key because what does the spirit of human judgment tend to do? It keeps judgment secrets from the person you're judging and tends to tell everyone else. Because we're not acting in that spirit, instead we're following the way of non-judgment, we want to go directly to the person. And in doing so, what we're offering them is the good is the gospel. All right? So so phrases that I think are helpful are things like, hey, I noticed this. Right? So again, that's it's coming, you're coming down low into the problem instead of speaking from up high down to it. We're saying, I notice this. What's the story here? Can you tell me, like, is this a ongoing struggle for you? Is this something you've always dealt with? That kind of like peer-to-peer servant language is really helpful rather than, hey, I noticed you're doing this and you need to stop it. Or you need to get it together. Or I can't be with you anymore. That's just like instant. We we move to judgment too quick. We're coming in with the gospel, which is, hey, man, I noticed this. I'm assuming you don't like this either. I'm assuming you want redemption here. I'm assuming you feel trapped in this. What's the story here? And then asking, how can we receive Jesus for this together? Again, that's the heart of Christ, right? You actually join into the problem with someone like Jesus did for you and say, let's put our faith together. Let's put our strength together. Let's work together and treat this as a common burden instead of a you problem. What this is is still non-judgment. There's no condemnation here at all. 
That's why Jesus says at the end of it, if they listen to you, you've gained your sibling. Right? The hope is Jesus's restoration. Now, step four is if they continue in this pattern, and I don't mean like continue as in, man, I'm still working on this, but I'm struggling. Right? That's, we're not, the sanctification, the change journey takes time because it's all about uprooting roots that you don't even know exist. You just know the fruit sucks and you need help for it. So there's a process of like self-awareness and Jesus kind of digging up what's in. That takes time. And so in our church, what we want is we want tons of gospel, but we also want to give people time to figure that out, right? It's not just like, hey, follow the rules, dude. It's a process. It's a new identity that's received and change comes from that. But when somebody is like off the path, right? Like off the journey and going, screw this. I'm not even trying anymore. You can tell things are worsening and they're becoming more maybe belligerent about it. That's when Jesus gives us a next step in the redemption journey. And he says this, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence or two of two or three witnesses. Now, I think in a traditional society, like if you're from some other part of the world other than um, having grown up in Canada or in the West, the West is so individualistic. It It's very threatened by people coming to you, which is sad, to be honest. But I think coming from more long-standing kind of traditions from other parts of the world, you actually have a better grid for two people coming to you and talking to you or three people coming to you. Because Canada is so individualistic and people get their guard up so fast, I'd recommend you just bring one other person with you, right? So there's three of you in total. If you stack the deck too much, there's three of you against one. I think that's a bit too hard on our individualistic sensibilities. Not saying those are holy, but I think we got to keep them in mind incarnationally. Okay, so Jesus says, bring someone with you. And the goal here is still not actually to come with a pronouncement of judgment. The goal is still restorative. But now a charge is in the air a bit. It's being brought by you, or to you, say somebody's coming to you, by a friend within the church. And the third person is there to verify that the concern is valid as a non-judgmental witness. Now, this should be relational. I don't think this should be some kind of mini trial. I brought you here today because I want to tell you about the sins of this person. No, no, no. It's a conversation amongst friends. right? You should be bringing in somebody that has a relationship with that person. Where you can say, I'm concerned here. This has been hurtful to me or this has been worrisome. Can we have this conversation together? We've already had this conversation, him and I, or her and I, but I also want to bring you in to help us see if we're reading it right. That third person will either agree that the concern is valid or may determine that the other person, you know, let's say it's me, I brought this third person in. They might go, yeah, Ryan's concerns here are valid for you. Or they might say, actually, I think Ryan's being kind of nitpicky. Ryan's being a bit judgmental here. And then that brings some help to me, an opportunity for me to receive grace and to receive Christ. The goal is to identify that very thing. 
where the need for Jesus is and how collectively we can receive Jesus for that need. Now, if the person still refuses to hear the concern and respond to the invitation to receive Christ, then comes the next step. But you can see all of these steps are about, hey, let's find the need here and let's resource it with Jesus. Step five, Jesus goes on here. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this first step, though, is this, to bring it to the church. Now, I can't overemphasize how important it is not to skip any of these steps leading up to this one. Okay, hear me. Missing just one of the steps beforehand throws the whole of the church into a spirit of judgment. And I believe this to be a greater sin than the sin of the individual because the church becomes hypocritical. To which Jesus is going to say what? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First to take First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The goal here is to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed with gentleness and care. And you can't do that if you've just skipped all those steps. You haven't had any one-to-one conversation. Instead, you just went to the leadership of the church and said, hey, you need to discipline this dude. Does that feel like love and care? And it doesn't feel like it's naturally building to a place where that makes sense. So this is really important. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.21 says this, I charge you to keep these rules for church discipline without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So this is hugely important. So don't, so a way of talking about this is that, let's say you see something that's troubling in somebody within the church. Don't just come right to the pastor or the priest. Your job is to love that person enough to have some hard conversations. And if in your own journey, you're like, actually, I'm just kind of looking too closely at them. I need to focus more on myself. That's a good result. If you have the conversation with them and you start to go, no, no, this, there's not enough evidence for me to have this conversation with them, that's a healthy um, result to come to for yourself. But then to have that conversation, to give opportunity to join together mutuality in the gospel, you don't want to miss those steps. And we can do that when we skip to just, hey, go to the elders and get them to talk to this person. Boy, it just sets the whole thing, the whole equilibrium is off by that point. So this is really important. And and I think the danger for churches is that they can tend to categorize some sins as more serious than others. And then in doing so, they're actually doing the very thing Paul says not to do, which is show partiality. So after all the years of what the Canadian church has been going through in terms of defining sexuality and the way of Jesus and what is God's vision and what's not, 
all that it can skew the equilibrium a bit where we only discipline, we only bring this type of process to sexual sins. All the while we're ignoring things like greed. We're ignoring judgmental spirits. We're ignoring controlling sinfulness within the church. We're ignoring a priority prioritization of some people over others. There's all these sins and unhealth that we're ignoring, but we're just going to harp on and seek to discipline people who struggle with a certain category of sin. I think this culture of what Jesus is calling to, of non-judgment that actually seeks to move people towards the gospel through love, is a far healthier vision for us to be pursuing. And then what it does is what we need, what we need generations to see is that we put the most weight of accountability. We put the most prioritization on the need for the gospel on the mature. And what that does, so the older generation is held to higher standards because we're trying to showcase how the gospel works for us. So that younger generations can see, then that same gospel can work for me too. Now, if at this point, the leadership gets involved of the church, and they step in also, and they're saying, okay, we've been hearing this. It seems like you're pretty committed to living this way. We want to invite you one last time. Are you sure you don't want to walk in receiving Christ for this need, if they at that point reject the gospel again, then that's where the next step is initiated in step six. Now, before we do that, I need to say a couple things here. There's only really one instance in which any of the above steps can be skipped within the church. Do you know when that is? It is when you or someone else feels that they are experiencing an abuse of power within the church. So what do I mean by that? If you think a child is being mistreated, or if you are being mistreated by a deacon or a priest or a warden or a bishop, this is actually why the Anglican Church has the people's warden. It's because, let's say you're feeling sinned against by the priest— by me, for example, then Matthew 18 doesn't apply to you in the same way, because it's unfair for you to have to go and address your authority or your pastor or your priest or your bishop directly. Instead, what you should do is know that you have the people's warden as an option for you. The position of the people's warden within the Anglican Church exists so that you can take complaints about the rector or another pastor or anyone, really, directly to someone who has an open line to the bishop. It's not appropriate to apply Matthew 18 standards on those who have a complaint, concern, or have been sinned against by someone in authority. That doesn't count here. You're not expected to go to a private conversation to your abuser directly. So in our parish, I believe, believe it should be the standard that any complaint concerning the character and actions of myself 
or one of our staff or our leadership that one complaint is enough to pursue meaningful repentance. The true Christian leadership is looking for opportunity to recognize where they're falling short and believe the gospel. That's true Christian leadership. So we're actually looking for opportunity. I'm hoping that any disagreement I'm in with someone in the church can be solved through my repentance. That's actually my ideal. Now, what Paul says in 1 Timothy, actually, is that with three instances or witnesses, that the bishop should be informed, that there should be discipline that's brought in. So I just want to throw in that caveat that if you're like, if you're like, I'm feeling hurt most by my pastor, Matthew 18 isn't the best response because actually you should go to the authorities in the church and look for accountability to be brought to the pastor or to the bishop or whoever. Now, step six, I got to close here because we're going too long already, but sex or step six brings us to our closing point. That the response then, if the gospel is rejected again, when it's brought by the leadership of the church to the individual, if they receive, refuse to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This brings us to verse 6 of chapter 7. What this verse shows us is that Jesus isn't actually backing us into a corner where we're stuck passively affirming someone's dysfunctional behaviors. There is a point of judgment. But rather than seek to bring to bear wrath and consequences that we wrought for them, right? So the goal is not to go, you're hurting me, so I'm going to bring the consequences to you. Instead, what Jesus is instructing us to do is to actually bring a greater judgment, which is to cease offering them the good news. Why? Because in their rejections, they're trampling on his offer of redemption. And rather than thanking you for the grace that you're offering, they will instead use the opportunity to attack you. And Jesus uses two examples here. And I know in our modern sensibilities, they make us feel uncomfortable To be honest, some of how I read this is to go, somehow this made sense for Jesus that he didn't feel like these were insulting phrases. Because earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us we were committing a heart of murder when we call somebody a fool. So there's no way Jesus can say, in your anger, don't call someone a fool. That's murder. And then on the other hand, call somebody a dog or a pig and think of that as insulting. So that's part of how I make sense of this. But here's what Jesus is saying. In the end of of the section in Matthew 18, he calls them tax collectors, right? So so he's saying, treat them like tax collectors and like Gentiles. Now, the tax collectors, they are like dogs in the violence of it. It's intentional exploitation and harm of others. And Jesus is saying, you should be wary of these folk, that those who are consistently rejecting the gospel and violent and and harsh and mean and exploitive. Don't keep throwing out the gospel to them. They're just going to turn and harm you. In the same way, then, he uses this language of pigs. Now, in the Jewish culture at that time, it's a reference to the Gentiles, the world that is not Israel. 
But much of what defined the world at that time is this dehumanizing, unchecked desire that goes, I can pursue any desire I want, but the reality is, is that our desires are so broken and sinful. They really do result in a life of, of unholiness and pain. We look at the parable of the two sons, the son that runs away and ends up in the pig pen. This is essentially kind of what's being communicated, is that these unchecked desires, it's a, it's a willful uncleanness to live that way of just debauchery that is dehumanizing. Jesus is essentially saying, let them make their own choices, honor their personhood, their agency. And stop pushing and presenting the gospel only to have them trample it and attack you. Because that's often the case, isn't it? Somebody who doesn't want to change, what are they going to do? They're they're obviously going to reject it, and then in doing so, trample grace. Or they're going to attack you. How many times have you had those conversations with someone where you're like, I was trying to help, and now you're coming after me? Jesus is saying... Treat them like non-believers. According to him, we're then to just release them. Let them go. You're the one that's trying to create change, and they don't want it. Let them go. Now, does this give permission to not love them? Does this give permission to harsh treatment? Does this give permission to dealing out consequences? No. Jesus is saying they're outside the church now. And as Paul explains, we don't judge the world. That's not our job. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So we're just full-blown releasing it. Going, okay, I'll step back from this. But we still love our neighbors as ourselves. We still love our enemies. We still live non-judgmentally, and we keep no records of their wrongs. We sought to serve them and love them well, but we release them. So we don't go after them. We don't punish them. We don't hurt them. We just respect them. But because they're image bearers, we continue to love them. We respect their decisions, their choices, while we await with a soft heart, praying for the day that they come back to us with a soft heart, that we might offer the good news of redemption again. And to be honest, you know, I've seen a lot of that, where you just go, okay, man, I'm not going to push this anymore. I'm going to, I release you from this. I'm not going to keep hounding you. And then in a few months or maybe a couple of years, they come back and they go, man, You love me well. I just didn't have ears to hear it, but I'm ready now. I'm ready to return to the gospel. The way I've been living my life has felt terrible. I've not felt better. I've felt worse. I've done more harm than good. I'm tired of living this way. I'm ready for the good way of Jesus. And then in that moment, what do we say? I'm all in, bro. I'm all in. My whole heart's yours. Let's do this together. Let's receive the way of Jesus.
So I realize that's a lot today, but it gives us a good summary of going, this is what a life of non-judgment looks like. It leads to a place where we got to make some decisions. But really, what we're doing is we're just deciding to honor their decisions while we continue to, to just hold to the gospel for our own our own sins, our own needs, our own weaknesses. When they refuse the gospel, all those stages, what do we do? We return to step one. We don't judge. We go to work on our own hearts, because I'm guessing that journey was kind of impactful. And we focus on our need for Jesus. And we pray that their hearts would soften to receive him as well. I hope this serves you well, my friends. Bless you.